This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 ESPN. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors, and our goal is to provide our listeners the real facts and the real stats about the local market. You wouldn't go into a basketball game without a well-prepared game plan. Well, real estate's no different. We're going to give you some information today that will help you make a well-prepared game plan and make you a winner in the real estate market. To help me with that today, we have here Harry Pascuzzi. Harry is a real estate attorney, but he also, not but, but and, he's a real estate broker. (laughs) And um, he's actually, you hired me at one point, way back when. One of my many mistakes, Don, I agree. Well, and one of my many mistakes is about a year before that, or two years before that, I had hired you. Yeah, they hired each other for, I don't know how we ended up here. <laughs> it, it, yeah. Um, anyway, we are, we're here now. We've learned a lot as far as real estate over the years. It, I mean, because we've seen a lot of ups and downs. Um, back in the early 80s, I remember... Oh, this is the best one from you. So I was making a lot of money in real estate, and then all of a sudden uh, the market turned, although I didn't realize it. My last escrow canceled. My uh, savings account dwindled down. My credit card was maxed out. And I remember getting a Christmas card from you. Do you remember that? Not at all. <laughs> okay. The Christmas card said, Dear Santa, Please give me one more real estate boom, and I promise not to blow it all this time. <laughs> it, I, and that's why that I've remembered that one because I don't want to be caught in that spot again. Oh, he gave us a boom in 06. Okay, yeah. So tell us what happened in 06. <laughs> oh, God, I can't even begin to tell you what happened in 06. <laughs> Only thing I know is we have fully recovered from the 06 boom. I looked at a couple numbers yesterday, and in 2012, our median sales price was 123,000, but by um, or that's an 02. I'm sorry. By 06, we'd gone up to 312,000. Last month, we're at 325. So we fully have recovered from that boom that we should hopefully never happen again. And there's been enough legislation in place to throttle the mortgage companies so that it shouldn't happen again. Yeah, and a big, you know, people are saying or talking out there that we're doing it again because prices are going up again. And I have some uh, recent stats for that. But the difference is this time people have 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. They don't have the balloon payments, the negative amortization that led people to to a problem. And I've worried about that too, and I think you're absolutely right. This is a different type of market boom that we're having right now. And... You know, and talking to you about how many people are lined up in the front yard to take a look at houses because everybody wants to buy makes total sense. If you can get two and a half percent interest versus five percent interest, when for most people that's ninety percent of their house payment, you've effectively have said we're going to cut the house price in half. And man, if you don't buy right now, you know, and you're securing your future. Absolutely. I mean, you know 
what your payment's going to be in the year 2040. Yep. Um, I recently had a client who um, they bid $26,000 more than the asking price. Felt crazy. And when I called them up and said, hey, we ended up getting it because there were 10 offers on the place. We, they picked our offer. They're, they're going with it. There was silence. And I knew where the silence was going <laughs> because I had that fear too. Oh, my gosh, did we pay too much? Right. And, of course, we're never going to know what the other bids were. But I told them, focus on that interest rate you have for the next 30 years. And uh, he said, okay, Don, but I want you to know this is the we're not moving. This is our forever home because we're st- – we have that interest rate. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to give that up. I can't believe we're at 2.5% interest. I mean, when you and I broke into this business in the late 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, interest rate, a good interest rate was 6%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it varied between 6 and 7 8% all the time. It seemed we had a couple booms. I mean, in, in 1981, I remember it going up to 21% and then dropping back down. But five percent was phenomenal now to have two and a half percent or whatever you can get i I personally can't believe it Mm -hmm. i I wish i needed a house right now i bought a home from you and that was the one in madera the the farina built home right and you got me an an fha not adjustable an fha variable rate i believe it was but it was double digit yeah. And that was with the lower the lower payment. I think it was like 10 and a half, but then it would go up each year for the first five years. That's right. That was back in the days. I remember that time when we sold that subdivision. It was about 12% interest. But to help people get qualified, we bought down the interest rate for three years on a three, two, one buy down. So the people started at 9.5%, next year's 10.5%, then 11.5%, and 12.5%. And I always thought that that was really a dumb idea because people have got to prepare for three years down the road and their payments are going to go up 25%. Mm-hmm. By the way, to finish that story, um, the people who paid $26,000 more, um, and, you, and that's kind of shuddering and all that, after they moved in, then we went to sell their home, they got $28,000 <laughs> over asking. <laughs> and, and <clears throat> so it's just... That's the way it is now. I mean, people will, they're lined up to buy toilet paper. They're lined up to buy milk and other things. And uh, why not houses? Now, let me give you some recent statistics. So you were talking 2006 and and, and 2012 and all that. Let's go to the last two months of 2020. That was, I mean, these are still comparables that an appraiser can use shouldn't and i'll show you why so in november and december of 2020 and i'm going to talk about the average selling price now rather than the median the average was 352,000 for the first two months of 2021 which are typically slower could you know january and february closings are usually what happened in november and december but it was very active. Anyway, that number is up to 366000 So in a two-month period of time, $14,000 rise in average. Um, 
you're a real estate attorney now. Uh, what problems do you foresee in the next 10 years that might come from this? Well, thanks for catching me cold on that one. I hadn't thought that, that far ahead. That is the um, proverbial curveball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't see a lot of problems because, like you said, these are 30-year fixed-rate loans. I mean, I don't understand how banks put their money out for 30 years at 2.5% interest, take advantage of it, but there's no bubble to break here. I mean, uh, the one thing I see is when the interest rate starts rising, I think there's going to be a stagnation of purchase of homes, and we're going to have a real lull in the market. So... uh, I don't think that will lead to a downward movement in price because, mm-hmm. like I said in 2005, the real estate market has never in history ever dropped. Now, I was really wrong when 06 hit, but <laughs> I don't see this as dropping the price. I see it as flatlining the price for maybe a few years, mm-hmm. uh, but not dropping the price. That was a good answer. I threw you a curveball and you hit it. <laughs> And you you hit it squarely because, and I think it goes back to the safety and security of home ownership. Once you're in there and you know that if you're getting that principal and interest payment that says $1,500 per month, <clears throat> prices might change, but that fixed rate is going to stay for the next 30 years. And your your balance will go down. With appreciation and inflation, value should go up. With sweat equity, it could go up. So it's a winning proposition. People have equity this time. Right. And normally your house payment is the biggest monthly expenditure that you have. And while your salary is growing with inflation, your biggest expense does not go go with inflation. Maybe a little bit for taxes and insurance. But um, and coming down here, I was uh, thinking about you know, home ownership being what I preach to my grandkids as being one of the three things they should always strive for and to make for a good life. One is get a good education, get a good job, get your first house. As now you own it and you have pride. And um, if you do all three of those things, I think you're off to a great start. Mm-hmm. And you'll have family wealth. Yes. So, and I have a good story to tag on to that where somebody saw the importance of getting a home. So, there was this one guy, in fact, just closed escrow yesterday. And over the years, I've given keys to first time buyers many, many times. It's always great. Yesterday was a little even more special because this guy was so driven and motivated. And we lost out on several offers and he just never seemed to give up. He was determined. And I, about halfway through this process, I said, why are you so determined? And you know, what's motivating you? He goes, I'm going to have a little girl in, in uh, July and I want her to have a home to grow up in. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that, that just really got to me because he's doing it for a little girl that isn't even born yet. And um, uh, anyway, that's what home ownership is, is all about. Um, with that, we are going to our first commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio. I, I want to ask Harry, 
some of some of the celebrity clients that he has represented. Thank you. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And here in the studio, we have Harry Pascuzzi, a local real estate attorney and real estate broker, and also past president of the Fresno Association of Realtors. So thank you for coming down here. That was appropriate music. Put me in, Coach. Harry and I played on the same softball team for 30, 23 years, probably. I thought it was longer than that, but it seemed like longer. It may have been, yeah. Um, we knew it was time, though, for this to hang it up. Not when we couldn't run anymore or not when we weren't good anymore, but when we were winning a game 2-1 to one in the last inning and somebody hit a ground ball to the second baseman that should have ended the game, but we didn't have a second baseman. And it went out to right field. And we didn't have a right fielder either because we were playing with seven people. <laughs> that, that's when it's like, oh, I think our team is about done. <laughs> I remember playing a game near the end of the career, and the kid said, I remember you played against my dad years ago. <laughs> I was like, wow. All right. Well, I did mention before the break that you've had some celebrity clients. Um, tell us about them. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting career. Um, not that he is a celebrity by any means, but we we represented Marcus Wesson and his family when they bought a home in Fresno, and when he was arrested for basically murdering his family, I'm his call from jail, and he wants me to represent him in the criminal defense. I said, "You got the wrong attorney for that. You need a criminal attorney. Trust me, you do not want me." And then. Uh, I have I worked closely with Dan Yule and the Yule murders in Sunnyside. He had me over to sign papers the day after the murders because he had to sign the papers to close the escrow. And I met Dana Yule, and he asked me to be his real estate attorney after all the uh, after everything's over with. And that's like that is weird because he's having breakfast, reading the newspaper, calm as could be the day after his entire family was murdered, and he wants. A real estate career and, and buy and sell homes and and then there was always a Donald Trump escapade and running horse and yeah there, there's been a few interesting clients but I don't think you represented Trump I you, did not. You, you were on um, you represented and gosh I forgot I the represented name. Uh, uh, Mick Evans who was the owner of Elon construction who built the golf course and eventually took over the golf course from the developers who were <clears throat> Scott Webb and Tom O'Mara, who pretty much messed that whole thing up, and Mick was trying to resurrect it because he was owed a ton of money. And uh, along comes a phone call from the Trump Organization that Donald is interested. Mm -hmm. And that took off a... And you uh, dealt a lot with Michael Cohen, right? I dealt with Michael Cohen almost daily for like nine months. Fairly acerbic uh, individual. Can you tell me what acerbic means? <laughs> it's a jerk. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. What language was that in? Yeah. yeah. That could be Arabic. I don't know. He uh, he did never knew the facts, but he just would spout superlatives on the radio. Uh, not this station, but mm. just spout his superlatives, and I had to keep calling in and saying, the facts are wrong. 
And uh, in the end, I mean, <clears throat> Trump offered $10 million for the project, way too low. There was $30 million in the ground, and uh, Alan Autry actually called me and Mick in to present the offer to us, and we had to say no. And then the next day, the offer went up to $25 million. You think it was today's real estate market. Yeah. <laughs> and $25 million, I remember telling Alan Autry that uh, if he's going up $15 million in one day, there's more meat on the bone. We reject that offer, and we need $30 million, which we eventually got. He signed the purchase agreement and backed out during escrow. Mm-hmm. However, from what I understand or what I remember about the Running Horse Project, all the parcels for the 18-hole golf course were not purchased yet. It, they were not assembled and and put into a one package. True, but... Th- and this is back to the O'Mara web days, they did have all the parcels under option agreement so they could exercise their options <laughs> to buy it. They just didn't have the money to do it. And when, when they went and, and bailed out of the project and dumped it in Mixlap, uh, those options were still open. We could have exercised them, but Mick didn't have the money to do it either. And, uh, but there were seven options that would have completed the project. So that kind of leads into a, the real estate aspects, uh, the legal aspects of real estate. Can you describe to us what an option is? Oh, an option is a right to purchase a piece of property or a house or, or a business or property. It can come, you need to pay money for it. It's consideration, which is non-refundable money. So if I want to buy your house and you say, okay, I'll give you a year to do it, I need to pay you consideration to have that option open. So I need to give you $10,000 or something, which is non-refundable. You could also get an option if, say, I buy three houses from you and I may want to buy the fourth later, you can give me an option to buy that without consideration because actually my consideration is the purchase of the first three homes. So it's just the right to buy something at a later date. And does a purchase price have to be attached to an option or is that optional? (laughs) It's optional. Most times if you want to buy something, you want the purchase price set, but I have seen a few that are based on uh, appraisal at a later date. Uh, I think it's unenforceable when it says I have the option to buy your house at a price that we agree on. That's really not an option. You don't have anything. So mm-hmm. you got to base it on some formula or appraisal or something. And from what I understand, a lot of local builders, well, not just the local ones, but builders will do this. They'll, they'll go five miles outside the city and purchase an option to buy somebody's farm or somebody's property. And, you know, if in five years things are going that way, they probably complete it. And years later, here comes a new subdivision. That's right. And it's, it's a great way to go. I mean, to buy an option on property in the direction that the city is moving is a good idea, not just for developers, but, you know. Anybody that wants to make some money on real estate. How about a first-time home buyer? Might be a little hard on it with an option, huh? Yeah, that don't normally work that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what are some of the other things that you see out there? Uh, well, let, let's get right into this. What's the biggest disagreement that you see in real estate? Um, by far. By far. It, it's By far. The, the number one real estate dispute that's called into our office is the 
failure to disclose known material <clears throat> defects. I call it the TDS case, the transfer disclosure <clears throat> statement case. And uh, a lot of times after escrow's closed, the buyer finds something that's amiss with the property and it was not disclosed. So we always say you gotta, gotta prove three things. You gotta show that there was a defect. Two, the buyer knew or should have known about it. And number three, it was not disclosed. The problem with the TDS case is normally the, the numbers are low. The cost to fix it and put it in the condition you thought you bought it in, you know, goes from $5,000 up to $35,000, $40,000. And lawsuits nowadays are, are tremendously expensive. It'll cost you a minimum of $50,000 to, to fight a lawsuit. And you're fighting over $30,000. Doesn't make sense. Both sides are going to spend $100,000 to fight over 30 and it 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 really needs to be resolved and fortunately the real estate purchase agreement put out by car has a mediation provision in it mediation is a process where people get in a room with a neutral third party and their attorneys and they go through the pro- the problem and the neutral third party will tell both sides where they're wrong and try to pull this thing into a settlement because if they leave the settlement, uh, leave the mediation, they're sentenced to go to litigation because that's the only thing left to try to resolve it. And another thing that doubles down on the problem is the attorney's fees provision that's included in this purchase agreement, which says the loser is going to pay the winner's attorney's fees. So now once you get six months into a one-year uh, lawsuit, all of a sudden, it's not about the 30000 anymore. You can't lose because you're going to have to pay the other side's attorney's fees in addition to the cost of the problem. So I'll tell everybody out there, if you have a TDS problem, settle it before you go to court. TDS problems, unless the costs are over $100,000, do not go to court. Mediate, get it settled, get it done. So on TDS court... Um cases make sure it's not tedious Dom <laughs> you always have these corny jokes Don you're killing me <laughs> all right so make sure it's substantial um, and make sure that you have communicated as best that you can to resolve it in fact when you said you're sentenced to litigation I've served on nine different cases as an expert witness where I've been hired on by one side or another to give an expert's opinion on what should have been done. Every one of them was a disclosure case, so that that goes to what you're saying. But eight of the nine, um, eight of the nine cases settled before it ever went to court. So somewhere there, there ended up being a uh, surge of communication. Well, what ends up happening is the closer you get to your court date, the more you learn about the other side's case. You do your depositions. You get your documents. You are now learning their case. See, what happens sometimes, which is really wrong, is people will uh, fire their gun before they, they look, and they'll start the lawsuit without knowing the other side's case. I always say, before we start a lawsuit, there's two sides to every story. I mean, people will say, well, here's our side. I go, well, now I know exactly one side of the story. Well, let's go find the other. Well, I don't want you to hear the other guy's side of the story. We need to know it because we're going to learn it sooner or later. Let's learn it before we fire our gun 
and mm-hmm. figure out how to solve this thing. And, and let me tell you one more thing that's problematic with TDS lawsuits. They are expensive cases to try because let's say you have a note for a million dollars. Don, you owe me a million dollars. You don't pay me. I go to court. That trial takes about 15 minutes. I hold my note up. I said he didn't pay me. Court says judgment against Gordino for a million dollars. The TDS Good case. Good luck collecting that, by I the know. way. <laughs> the, the TDS case, you have to bring in experts. Normally it's construction. You're bringing in construction experts, maybe multiple construction experts because there's six things the guy's complaining about, and you got six different trades that need to testify. <clears throat> Plus, there's a lot of documents in a real estate transaction. There's a lot of people who are witnesses. So the trials normally go two weeks, and it's, it, that's expensive. And if you think you know what the jury's going to say at the end of the, the, the day, you don't. Because I have, I used to try cases back, you know, 15 years ago. And I'm stunned at how when I thought I had a loser, we won. And when I knew we had the case won, we lost. And I interviewed the jury afterwards. I go, what in the heck? How did they come to this conclusion? And they tell me. And I go, that's not even the point. <laughs> so don't, don't. Rest your fate in 12 people. Yes. And the the ninth one that I was an expert witness on that actually went to court, fortunately it was not here in the Central Valley. I was called up to the Bay Area to sit on a trial there. When I looked at the jury, I don't think any of most of them have just come out of high school. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, dressed in T-shirts and shorts, and it's like, man you guys aren't taking this thing serious and i i don't know how they could have come up with the decision they did uh it it made no sense now i didn't sit in on all three weeks of the testimony so maybe there was something more to it than what i saw from my side of it but yeah the more you can communicate and resolve issues the better off you are that's right. Look at it from the other guy's point of view, what he's looking at. As and hard it, as that is. As hard as that is to do. And I'll save yourself a lot of uh, time, money, and stress. Yeah. All right. With that, we are going to our next commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino here with Harry Pascuzzi, real estate attorney. And I think as I look outside on this cold Saturday morning, we have chased the clouds away. And it's March, not September, but they're gone. Um, During the break, I got a text message from one of the listeners, and she wants you, Harry, to repeat. (laughs) Maybe it was me because she said great info. No. <laughs> uh, I think she was referring to you, though. But she said, what were those three things about the TDS issue and to get it resolved? And by the way, for our listeners who aren't in the real estate acronym business, TDS means transfer disclosure statement required by California law for a seller to present to the buyer for their three-day rescission, if they so choose, to learn, even though they're buying the property as is, 
they have a right to know what as is is. Right, and you can buy the property as is. Um, the three things are, first, there has to be a defect, and it can't be just a scratch on the paint. It has to be a material defect, and there's a thousand things that you can put on a TDS form, and what is material, what is not, is an issue. Second, the seller has to know about it. If, And I tell people, if, if there are cracked timbers in the attic, the seller may not know about that. If your roof fell two days after you bought the home and you want to sue the seller, did the seller know about the cracked roof joist or not? So there has to be knowledge or should have known. The should have known is there so the seller doesn't say, I didn't notice that my roof was caving in. Mm. The The third part, part is the disclosure. You have to disclose it. Fortunately, Carr has come up with a TDS form which allows for disclosure and forces the seller to disclose. And they've also now doubled down on that and have the seller property questionnaire, which is a second form of disclosure. Yeah. And the reason for that is the transfer disclosure statement came out of the state legislature. And, and I remember back, I think it was the early 2000s, just to add the word mold, they had to go and get a legislative action to change that disclosure statement. Mm -hmm. So when they made it, they said, hey, this is what it is and you can't change it. So, I mean, and the word solar doesn't even appear on a transfer disclosure statement. Therefore, the need for a updated secondary form, which is the seller property questionnaire. So, um, see, um, a little history there. For you. Did you even know that, Harry? 1978, the case of Easton versus Strasburger. <laughs> the legislator reacted to that case and came up with the uh, Civil Code Section 1102, which promulgated the TDS form. <laughs> okay, so you did know that. <laughs> um, and that was over a material thing. Or, or no, that's one of those you should have known things because it was uh, on a, hill, a home on a hillside. In Monterey County. Half the home slid down the hill. Mm -hmm. Seller knew it was coming and didn't disclose it to the poor buyer who bought the house and saw his, half his house go down the hill. All right. <laughs> next question. So, next question. <laughs> All right. Um, what about where it asks a question on the seller property questionnaire? Were there any repairs? And most of the time, this uh, or repairs, modifications, alterations, et cetera. <clears throat> yeah, that's, most, the uh, typical seller response when they're filling that form out is, well, of course, it, the house is 35 years old. I've repaired a lot. And I think that's a real tricky area because you have a problem. You hire the contractor. He fixes a problem. You don't have the problem anymore. But you got to disclose the fact, I did fix it, because maybe it wasn't fixed right. Here's what I tell people on, on TDSs. If there is a question, disclose. Disclose everything. Because the buyer's going into the transaction, they're going to read your TDS, and they go, yep, I'm buying a used house. I get it. If you don't disclose it, you open yourself up to the lawsuit afterwards. I remember telling a little old lady in the tower district, what should I disclose? I said, disclose everything that's a defect in your home. And she came back with eight single-spaced, handwritten things disclosing every minor crack in concrete, stain. And, it went, I, and she says, this too much. I said, there is no too much. 
give it to the buyer. I bet you the buyer says nothing about it. And the buyer said nothing about it. Mm -hmm. It's an older home. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great way to manage expectations too. So I've seen this where maybe a buyer goes in, they maybe they're even paying above the asking price, and then they get those disclosures and they realize, well, okay, it is not perfect. It's so once they're in the home, they should their expectations should be in line. And I'll give you a good example, and this is a mutual friend that you and I have. When I tell the story, you're gonna know exactly who it is, but he did everything himself, and he was not a licensed contractor. Um, he put his own roof on. He put his own air conditioner on. Um, he even dug his own swimming pool. There, there should be. Uh, yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and when we were selling that home and he went to fill out the disclosures, he said, you may have got to do that too. Yeah, you do, Dan. And, um, uh, he said, well, nobody's going to buy this house because you know, he didn't have a permit on anything. It was the most beautiful, well-done home. I mean, it, it's one of the most beautiful homes I've ever walked into. Yeah, I concur. And, um, and it didn't bother the buyer at all. Right. And here's a lesson I learned on that, too. They were concerned because the railroad tracks were two blocks away, and they had to disclose that you could hear the trains sometime and say, oh, boy, that, that'll be a killer for sure. They'll back out on that one. Come to find out the buyer of the home currently lived two houses away from those same railroad tracks. So, <laughs> she, you know, she was moving to Beverly Hills. Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, tell us about that rescission period. So you get it what are the buyer's rights? So you get that transfer disclosure statement uh, and there's something on there you don't like. What should the buyer do? Well, normally what the buyer does is what we want it repaired. And the way, and I will give car credit cards, the California association of realtors credit for their forms because their forms solve a lot of problems. And the way the, the schematic works on repairs you look at the TDS and you go, seller, I want you to repair all the following. Now, maybe it doesn't just come off the TDS. It also comes from the inspection that you do. But you ask the seller to make a certain number of repairs. Seller says, I'll do them all. Well, guess what? You're in it as a buyer. Seller says, I will do nothing or I will do only some. Now you got an election as a buyer. Do I buy it anyway or do I not? So this is way better. In fact, I brought Don a gift today. It was the entire real estate package when he and I broke into real estate, which consists of a one-page purchase agreement with eight questions. There was a lot left to the imagination in those days, but the new car forms, and actually looking at all the new car wind forms, and I think there's 870 of them. There's a form for everything, and they have covered virtually every track. So they have resolved a lot of things for us real estate attorneys because the first thing I'll tell people is, let me read the documents. The documents will give you a path. Mm-hmm. Well, just in a listing package, there's 53 pages. If you include the listing agreement and all the disclosures that the buyer will need to, to sign, 53 pages. And, and then, yeah, 
I, I almost want to say these were the good old days. A one-page contract. Most of them were filled out on the hood of the car or at Burger King. Mm-hmm. Um, and why is it that there were fewer lawsuits back then, or am I just imagining? I don't know. I mean— have we complicated things too much? I think we're in a different age right now. Um, it does seem like there's a whole lot more problems that arise now. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you why. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one problem I think we have with all the forms is the fact nobody reads anything anymore. You read your one-page purchase agreement. You, you could recite it word for word. But when you're handed 53 pages of information and signing 17 times through DocuSign, it's like, what would you sign? I have no idea. Go sign your loan package. What'd you sign? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the loan package is makes the 53 pages look small. Yeah. Because that's well over 100 pages and so many disclosures. Ah. Yeah. Um, and I think you said it right. The reason there's probably more lawsuits now is we're just in a different era. So it has nothing. If we came out with a one-page agreement in today's society... We'd have even more lawsuits. Uh, that's a good way to put it. I think it. the car forms negate a lot of lawsuits. I'll give them credit for that. All right. Let me point out one thing I, I wanted to kind of talk about today because it, it arose twice this week in my office. Two people, two separate cases, came in. They own a house. They paid off a loan 20 years ago, and now they want to refinance or sell. And that loan was never reconveyed. And I don't know if people really understand the process of what you need to do if you pay off a loan. Everybody's happy. They paid off their loan. They tore up their piece of paper. They have to have a document recorded in the recorder's office called a reconveyance. The reconveyance is signed by the person you're paying the money to, either the bank or a private party. What happens is if it's a bank, normally you don't have that problem. And you can go fix a problem because if it's B of A, you go back and you fix a problem. But both of these cases, individuals carried the notes and they're nowhere to be found or deceased and there's no one to sign. One, we cannot find the person at all. And in the other case, the person's claiming they're owed all the money still. And they've got, my people got to go back and prove what they paid 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the day you pay off your mortgage, make sure you get a reconveyance and it gets recorded and you get a recorded copy of it and put it, put it in your papers. Yeah. So just make sure that er- the world knows. And when you record something, that's telling the world that I paid it off. And more importantly, the, the bank or the lender has signed off saying, yes, it was paid. Absolutely. So you now have clear title. With that, we do have to go to our next commercial break. But stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. Don Scordino, your host here, along with Harry Pascuzzi, real estate attorney, real estate broker, and former president of the uh, Fresno Association of Realtors. Just as I cut you off before, I think you had something to say on... Uh, oh, on, on recordation of a reconveyance. Yeah. People think that you can erase a document like a deed of trust or a lien on your property. Once something is of record... It's of record forever. You cannot erase it. The only thing you can do is record another document 
which is paired with the first document that erases the first document. So deeds of trust are erased by a reconveyance. A um, abstract of judgment from a lawsuit is erased by a satisfaction of judgments. Uh, easement is erased by release of easement. So that's why they call it a chain of title. You don't erase one of the chains, one of the links. It, it's right. all part of it. it. Just keeps growing. I just thought of that one on my own. <laughs> okay, so I had a phone call from somebody up in the Bay Area th this week, and they have a real estate issue. They're in escrow. They're supposed to be closing. Um, and uh, they know my sister. That's why they called me. <laughs> so um, the problem is that the owner of the, pro the, the property is in the name of an individual and it never got put into her trust where a trust has a successor signer or successor trustee, trustee yeah. um, whereas an individual and not married. So there's no joint tenancy. Um, they need to get it into the trust so that they can um, sell the property, which they have already done. And they're already beholding to a buyer who's probably got the moving vans ready to go. But you don't have good title now, insurable title. So they were trying to get a power of attorney. The problem is she's in an Alzheimer's home. So you're saying the seller has Alzheimer's, title is in her name, and how do you transfer title? Yes. And a power of attorney isn't going to work because the person not. needs to have legal capacity to sign a document and they can't sign a power of attorney if they don't have legal capacity. The only thing you can do is go to court and have a conservator appoint, appointed. But this is in the Wills Trust probate area, which my wife Susan Pascuzzi does, not me. But in hearing enough spinoff, I know that to be fact. Yeah. Well, and I always heard she was the brains of the family, too. Way beyond the brains. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So... Um, that person really needs to speak with maybe the, well, is it possible that a notary can go out there and say, oh no, she was capable because I went through a lot of the normal protocol. This person can, does know what's happening. You know, to prove capacity could be a whole lot of people that know them and talk to them. I like to have a doctor be the one to decide on capacity as opposed to a notary or a real estate agent or someone like that. But when it comes down to in court trying to prove capacity, the court will look at a whole lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a notary's um, testimony is one of those things. I had another phone. Thank you for that. I had another phone call this week. Somebody was saying, from an agent saying, can I list the property? Um, it's a divorce case. And the husband lives in it. The wife has moved on. And supposedly they have an agreement on uh, how, how the money's going to get split. Um, can she, does she have a valid listing agreement with just the husband's signature? For purposes of a realtor, yes, you do. Because all a listing is is an agreement to pay a commission if an act is performed and that act is to bring me an offer which is acceptable to me or full price. I've earned my commission. So, yes, but the problem with that is they don't have the people to sign the 
a binding purchase agreement, which is now a, a, a document to sell the property or a, a grant deed when it's culminated. So yeah, one person can obligate themselves to pay a lot of money for somebody to do an act, but they can't transfer the property on their own. So put in another way, it's okay for one per, one of the two owners to sign an employment agreement basically saying, yeah, I'll pay you and do this do and find us a buyer. But to actually transfer the title, you're going to need both. Absolutely. Yeah. And ultimately it's the title company. In fact, you used to work at a title company too. Yeah. Um, so what describe to us what that title company does in this situation? There's, there's two halves to the title escrow industry. One's the escrow, one's the title. What escrow does is they manage your closing for you, gather all the documents, the funds, and they will close the escrow. They manage your escrow. Title, on the other hand, looks at the condition of the property, not the physical condition, but the paperwork condition of the property. So they will examine all the documents of record and produce a report which said, Here's the documents which affect you if you take title. And you kind of segued into one of the things I was going to talk about today because I don't think people put enough effort into reading a title report and the underlying documents. And the number one underlying document you really need to read are your CC&Rs, your covenants, conditions, and restrictions. When you buy a house, you're really subject to two sets of rules. One is the public, one's the private. The public rules are zoning laws. The private rules are normally the CCNRs. If you're in a homeowners association, you have another set of rules on top of that. If you go into a planned unit development, you got another set of rules. And if you go to condominium ownership, you go to the ultimate set of rules, which are governing your life once you step out your door. I'd like to correct you on that. The ultimate set of rules is when you live at home with your parents. Well, <laughs> you have got to be the corniest person I know. <laughs> well, all right. Um, and I will say this. I was thinking about, because I have a number of clients who live in condos and are upset with the way the condo association is being run. And I think a condominium project, it allows you to get in for a great price, but I think it's a the ultimate conflict between the freedom that people want in our society in the United States of America versus the ultimate rules and regulations of what you can and can't do with your property. And that is inherently going to boil into conflict. That's a really good point. We, you know, yeah, we live in a free America, and yet you choose to live in a place where, okay, we're all going to abide by these same rules. Um, and... Some of your here's why you got to look at those CCNRs. If you intend to put a RV on the side of the house, your CCNRs, covenants, conditions, restrictions, may prohibit you from doing that. And and maybe nobody will say anything until two years later, somebody moves next door and says, "Huh, I don't like the side of that thing." And I read my CCNRs and I know that that's not allowed here. Now you got a problem. And I remember the first time I was upset by CCNRs because I want to put a basketball court in my front yard, and they were prohibited by the CCNRs. Yeah, I remember that story. So when I wanted to put one up, I went to my neighbor who it would have impacted, and um, I asked him, "Hey, would you mind if I do this?" 
And he said, nah. He goes, just teach your kid to play basketball. And, Don, do you know that anyone in your subdivision that's bound by the same CCNRs can bring a lawsuit to enforce those CCNRs against you? So somebody three blocks away could complain about the basketball uh, hoop in your front yard. All right, good point. Uh, It's still there, though, years later. (laughs) And with that, I want to thank you, Harry, for coming in. Uh, Quickly, in 15 seconds, what's your best advice? I'd say consult an attorney, but that's that's too obvious. I say resolve everything. You know, leave the disputes for somebody else. Try to figure out the other guy's story. Resolve things in, in between yourselves, if not in mediation. All right. Thank you very much, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week with Supervisor Nathan Magzik. Thanks. <laughs>